you very much indeed. Um, it is the practice in some churches to uh, look at one passage on Sunday morning and uh, something completely different on Wednesday in the midweek Bible study. Uh, we don't do that here at St Barnabas. We look at the same passage in our midweek Bible study and the questions for this week are inside the pink sheet you received as you arrived here this morning. And also to help you, you'll notice that on the back of the bulletin uh, there is an outline, a very simple outline, uh, that highlights what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, So without further ado, uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your many kindnesses to us. And we pray that out of your abundance you would help us to see into your word this morning. Uh, To see things that are precious and timely and helpful and strengthening and convicting. And we ask that you would not only help us to see these things, but also to act upon them. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, fairly obviously, I think, you can see we're starting a new series this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, or what uh, I'm calling Jesus' Mountain Manifesto. And God willing, we're going to spend at least eight weeks on it. And we're going to be looking at issues like uh, Christian character, and uh, relationships, and anger, and lust, and divorce, and revenge, and generosity, and prayer, and worry, and relationships, and hypocrisy, and security. Issues which are important for all of us in this room this morning. And uh, the great theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that when the Kingdom of Heaven comes to earth, people are made brand new. Uh, They're living under the rule of King Jesus and at the same time they're living in the world. And it's the newness that we're going to be emphasising this morning in the first 12 verses. Now I want to start by saying that the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of rules to keep. Uh, Jesus is definitely not saying Uh, Do these things and the world will be a much better place. Because what we need, first of all, first and foremost, is to be changed. Uh, So the Sermon on the Mount is not, if you like, a lump of clay that you can mould into a particular shape so that it satisfies you or fits in with your particular world view. There are plenty of people who do that with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Those of us who are oldies uh, will remember a man called Frank Sinatra. Uh, Those of you who are a bit younger probably haven't even heard of him. But uh, in any event, he was born in 1915. He died in 1998. He was a famous singer, uh, actor, and serial womanizer. And uh, on one occasion, he was asked what he believed, and this is what he said, quote, I believe in nature, in the birds, the sea, and the sky everything I can see or that there is real evidence for. And if these things are what you mean by God, I believe in God. But I don't believe in a personal God to whom I can look for comfort. 
I'm for anything that gets you through the night, be it prayer, tranquilizers, or a bottle of Jack Daniels. But to me, religion, he said, is a deeply personal thing, in which man and God go it alone. So I believe God knows what each one of us wants and needs, and that it's not necessary for us to make it to church on Sunday in order to reach him. I believe you can find him in any place, and if that sounds heretical, my source is pretty good. It's Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount. Well, uh, I don't know what uh, translation Frank Sinatra was working from, but it very definitely isn't the one that we've got in our Bibles this morning. And how interesting that uh, Frank Sinatra's daughter said of her father that he was a man who throughout his life looked outside for what was missing inside. In other words, Frank Sinatra was a deeply empty man. He was not new. And so I hope as we go through this marvellous teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that you're going to be thanking God that he gives new life. I hope some of you are going to be thanking God that he's given you new life. And I hope that one or two of you will be saying, actually, this is what I want. At the start of a new year, uh, I want a fresh start with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But this morning, as I say, we're just looking at the first 12 verses, and I've got only two points. Number one, the king who changes everything. And number two, the king who changes anyone. So firstly then, the king who changes everything. Now this takes place right at the very beginning uh, of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He gets away from the crowds, uh, he goes up a mountain, and his disciples come up to him there. That's what we read in chapter 5, verse 1. And uh, as we read that, we're meant to see a parallel here with Moses. Because Moses also went up a mountain where he received the Ten Commandments from God, And in just the same way, Jesus is going up a mountain and he's going to announce eight blessings. And so in verse 2, we read that he began to teach them. And if the Sermon on the Mount were only Matthew chapters 5 to 7, then it would have been a ten-minute sermon. But I don't think it was a ten-minute sermon. Most of the experts agree that what we've got here is a summary of many, many hours of teaching. And uh, as Jesus opens his mouth, you'll see in chapter 5, verse 3, that Jesus announces who the blessed people are. Now, some of you will remember that in the Old Testament, there were blessed people and there were cursed people. Do you remember that in Deuteronomy? And in the Old Testament, the people who were blessed had lots of external, visible blessings. God poured down his blessings on them. So they were given things like land and crops and big families, lots of success and victory over their enemies. That is what blessing looked like in the Old Testament. And now here, Jesus, who is the king, 
is about to announce who the blessed people are. And you think to yourself, well, surely, surely Jesus is going to say that it's the successful and it's the strong and the victorious and the people who believe in themselves. It's the rich and it's the powerful. And you see, you and I are so very used to the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and these words, blessed are the poor, that we forget what an enormous shock this actually was for the people who were there and heard what Jesus said. Uh, Throughout their lives, the disciples of Jesus had been taught that blessing is a concrete thing. It's visible. It's a visible abundance of lots of good things. But Jesus opens his mouth and he says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the sad, the humble, the hungry, the peaceful, and the persecuted. And I think at that point, if we use our sanctified imaginations, we can picture the disciples' jaws dropping and uh, thinking to themselves, Jesus, you cannot be serious. Uh, Is this really what it means to be blessed? And Jesus says, absolutely it is. Because these things are a sign that you have new life inside you. Uh, Just pause on the word blessed for a moment because it is a much bigger word than simply the word happy. Uh, You will find one or two Bible translations uh, that translate the Beatitudes beginning happy is, happy is, happy is. But happiness is an emotional subjective experience. On the other hand, this word blessed means that you are favoured by God, that God approves of you, that you're in God's good books, that you are a converted, transformed kingdom person. So a little earlier in the service, White alluded to the story that Jesus tells in Luke's Gospel about the two men who go up to the temple to pray and you remember that one of them was boasting. He was saying, Lord, I thank you that I'm so great. I don't do this, I do do that, I just thank you that I'm a really terrific person. And then right at the back of the temple, uh, Jesus says there's another man who's beating his chest and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that it was the man at the back who went home in fellowship with God. He got what he asked for. Very interestingly, the the man at the front also got what he asked for, which was actually nothing. And of course he went home out of fellowship with God. So you notice right at the beginning, in chapter 5, verse 3, that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, That is a phrase Matthew uses, while the other Gospel writers use the phrase the Kingdom of God. Matthew didn't do that. Uh, He normally talks about the Kingdom of Heaven because he wanted to be very sensitive to his Jewish readers, who really did not like the name of God being thrown around. So Matthew tends to speak of the Kingdom of Heaven, but it's essentially the same thing as the Kingdom of God. Now what sort of kingdom is Jesus announcing? Well, it's not a political kingdom. 
It's not a kingdom of soldiers and horses and battles and victories. No, it's a, it's a kingdom of people who have been profoundly and deeply changed. It's a kingdom of people who've recognised that Jesus is the king and as a result their heart, their, the, the, the centre of their personality gets radically transformed because, you see, Jesus is a king who changes the heart. And whatever struggles you might be facing at the beginning of 2020, the biggest challenge in your life and mine is for heart change. So what is the big point here? It is that Jesus is the king. He's talking to his disciples He's explaining to them what it means to be blessed and Jesus is saying that it is an internal thing and it is an eternal thing. It's internal transformation now and the consequences of that internal transformation now last forever. So when Jesus comes and he sets up his kingdom on earth, it means that your heart is changed. And that is good news today, and it's good news forever. And we need to know this, because if you think that the Sermon on the Mount is basically just a series of whacks to get you to be good, and to be a better person, and to do things properly, what will happen is you'll be terribly depressed on the bad days, and on the good days you'll be terribly, terribly proud. Now, one of the most famous missionaries to Africa was a man called Dr. Albert Schweitzer. And Dr. Albert Schweitzer believed that the Sermon on the Mount was a series of rules. And uh, he said that um, when the disciples failed to obey the rules, as they often did throughout the Gospel, Jesus became desperate. So what he decided to do was to go to the cross to shock them and to wake them up, and to get them to take him seriously. I want to say to you this morning that Dr. Albert Schweitzer was profoundly wrong. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is teaching that he knows precisely what he's doing. He's announcing that he's able to change people's hearts, that he's able to give them new life, and the reason that he's able to do that is because he's going to pay for it in his death. So, Jesus is the king who changes everything. He's already changed millions of people around the world. He's still changing them today. And that brings us to the second thing I want to say this morning, which is that Jesus is the king who changes anybody. He can change anybody in this room this morning, anybody in Cape Town, anyone in your family, anybody in your office. He changes anybody. So I rather like the story of the lift boy uh, who was working in New York in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, In those days, companies would employ a lift boy to stand in the elevator, open the door, close the door, press the button uh, in whatever it was, the department store or the office block or whatever it was. And one of these lift boys was a Christian. And he would say, whenever anybody got into the elevator, I can take you from floors 1 to 10, only Jesus can take you to heaven. And uh, when they asked him why that was the case, 
Uh, the little boy said, well, I'm a nobody telling everybody that there's a somebody who can save anybody. A somebody who can save anybody. Now, that is the message of verses 3 to 12. Because, my dear friends, verses 3 to 12 are a picture of Christian conversion. This is what Christian conversion looks like. Uh, So these verses, let me say, are not like a car in a car park. Uh, As if you can choose the particular blessing that you like and that you think applies to you, drive away with that and ignore all the rest. No, they're more like carriages on a train. They all belong together and there is a sequence. Or, uh, if you prefer a slightly more feminine illustration, uh, these are not like chocolates in a chocolate box where you sort of look around and yes, I'll have that one. No, they're more like pearls on a necklace. They're strung together, they're stuck together and there is a sequence. And I think that you will be really blessed this morning if you understand what they mean because they show us so clearly what Christian conversion really looks like. So, if somebody asks you this week, uh, what does it look like when somebody experiences the new birth, you can say it looks like Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. And uh, if you want to know whether you've been born again, then look at verses 3 to 12. Because it says that when Jesus had finished saying these things to his disciples, basically what he was saying was, this is you. This is you. So blessing number one, verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, you know that your spiritual pockets are empty. You know that your spiritual bank balance is nil. You're spiritually poor and you know it. Now that might be a very dramatic moment for you, Uh, so you might be a bit like the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, who was terrified and said, what must I do to be saved? And uh, back came the answer, believe in the Lord Jesus. Alternatively, it could be um, a fairly quiet process, like Lydia, also in Acts chapter 16. Remember, she's listening to Paul's sermon, And during the sermon, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. So, it could be a sense of panic, or it could be a new sense of humility and need. But basically, in both cases, you get to the point where you say, I absolutely need Jesus Christ. Are you there yet? Instead of standing up tall and proud and saying, I'm fine, I believe in myself, you find yourself bowing your head and you say to Jesus Christ, I am completely bankrupt. Please will you make me spiritually rich. Blessing number two, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, it's not somebody at a funeral. No, you're brought to the position of grieving or repenting. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, that extraordinary moment when Isaiah cries out, Woe is me! 
And again, that could be really, really dramatic for you. Uh, It could be like King David, uh, who, if you remember, was caught in his sins. Uh, Suddenly, you're incredibly cut to the heart and you're exposed in front of everybody. It's mortifying. And you end up praying something like Psalm 51 or Psalm 32. Or it could be something a bit quieter. Perhaps like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember Jesus revealed her sins. Yeah, you've had five husbands. And uh, she goes away and she says to the people in the village, come meet a man who knows all about me. You know, in the letter of James, uh, there's a place where the half-brother of Jesus, James, says, grieve, mourn, wail. In other words, James is saying, stop laughing. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here, because you see, one of the lies in our culture today is that everything has to be funny. Now, don't misunderstand. Um, I like to laugh. Uh, It's good to laugh. I think I have a sense of humour. But uh, the person who laughs all the time, and you'll know people like this, can I say the person who laughs all the time is out of touch with reality. And a great deal of humour in our culture is avoidance. And there is a time, there is a time when it's right and wise to grieve, to grieve over sin. And Jesus says, when you do that, you are blessed, proved by God. Blessing number three, verse five. Blessed are the meek. Uh, These are the people who see themselves as God sees them. So they're not comparing themselves to other people. And their greatest need in life is not to be praised, but to be helped. So meekness is not pretending to be humble. No, it's being honest about yourself in the light of the coming of Christ into the world. Moses was a very meek man. The Bible describes him as meek. And the reason uh, that Moses uh, was that Moses had this kind of overwhelming experience of the glory of God in the book of Exodus. And in exactly the same way, when you and I look at the person of the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, it should make us very meek. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary that when a, a man or woman becomes meek, listen to this, they stop worrying about themselves or worrying about what other people might say about them. Uh, to be truly meek means that you no longer protect yourself because you, you recognise there's nothing worth defending. You're not on the defensive. All of that's gone. The person who's truly meek never pities himself. They don't feel sorry for themselves. They're not saying, you know, how unkind these people are to me. If only they would give me a chance, they'd see how absolutely marvellous I am. No, he says, these people don't think like that. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what hours and years we waste in self-pity. But the person who's become meek has finished with that. In other words, to be meek means that you come to see that you have no rights and no deserts at all. And you you also realise that no one and nothing 
can finally and ultimately harm you. Uh, John Bunyan put it like this, he put it very well. He said, he that is down need fear no fall. So if God has brought you to see yourself as a deeply sinful person, but also a person who is deeply loved by Jesus, then you are blessed. Blessing number four, verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because, you see, the great longing of their hearts is that they would be right with God, not cut off from God, not in God's bad books, but in God's good books. And as a result of that, they want to live for him. Now, when you're not a Christian, just think back to the time when you were not a Christian. When you're not a Christian, what is your appetite? Uh, Your appetite is for the things of the world. It's not for spiritual things. So when you're not a Christian, uh, you will say, at least in your heart, if not out loud, I don't want any Christian books, I don't want to listen to any Christian sermons, don't give me a tract, I'm full of that, finish with it. I'm hungry for the world. But when you become a Christian, all of that changes. And you find yourself saying, you know, I'm really hungry to know Jesus Christ better. I really want to know his word better. I'm really hungry to have a closer walk with Jesus and I'm just not hungry for the things of the world anymore. Yes, they're real to me. They haven't gone away. I can see them. But I'm just not hungry for them in the way that I was before. And so our appetite changes in the way that it did for the Apostle Paul. Do you remember in uh, Philippians chapter 3, I think it is, what Paul basically says is that the stuff of the world has lost its appeal and the things of Christ have gripped my appetite. And Jesus says, the person who can say that is a blessed person. They're approved by God. I'm surprised, you know, (coughs) by some of the people I've met, and uh, you'll probably know them as well, people like this, who call themselves Christians but they have no real appetite for Christ and his word. And it worries me. That worries me. Because if that's where you are, you will never mature, and you might not even persevere as a Christian. It doesn't matter how old you are, or how clever you are, or how good you are, um, you cannot be spiritually mature if you do not have a hunger for the word of God the Bible. And uh, if your hunger, if your hunger is for the trivia of the world and you're satisfied with that and you're fed up with the Bible, I want to encourage you to worry about yourself this morning. If the reverse is true, Jesus says you're blessed. Blessing number five, verse seven, blessed are the merciful. So suddenly that the mercy of God has flooded into your heart and into your mind and it starts to move out from you towards other people. Which means that you cannot possibly be like the man in Matthew 18 who you remember has been forgiven billions and he won't forgive hundreds. And you find that 
The mercy you have received from God changes your relationships. And you find yourself saying, you know what, I've received such a lot, how can I not forgive someone else? And this change of heart is seen in the way that you begin to deal with the people around you, and particularly the people who have hurt you. And we we say to ourselves, you know, I've received so much mercy, I've got some to give away. And Jesus says, if God has made you into a merciful person, then you are blessed. Blessing number six, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It means there's a new fountain inside you. Do you remember Jesus says, he talks about coming to him and streams of living water welling up within you, which is a picture of new life. It's a picture of a new vitality that's been planted in you that wasn't there before. Uh, It's not an external ritual purity like it was for the Jews in Jesus' day. No, it's a real inward spiritual change. And the promise of God is that if that process has begun, you're blessed. So be deeply thankful this morning if God has produced that change in you, this new life. Then blessing number seven, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Well, because you want other people to experience peace with God as well. So you haven't just received peace, you want other people to have it. It's actually what the mission of the church is all about. It's what motivates evangelism, gospel conversations. We want other people to have peace with God and to become God's children. And if God puts that desire in your heart, you're blessed. And then last blessing, verse uh, 10 and 11, blessing number 8. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. In other words, all of a sudden, uh, you've become a bit like a fish swimming upstream. Uh, Your non-Christian friends uh, see that you're not quite as cooperative as you were before. You're not quite as profane in your use of language as you were before. You're no longer pushing the same non-Christian agenda that you were pushing before with your friends or your colleagues at work. And um, you begin to experience some coldness from the people around you. You begin to experience some pushback. Um, So staying with the fish analogy, you're not a dead fish Uh, just drifting in and out with the tide of the world. You're actually swimming against the tide of the world. And when that happens, you are sharing in the cost of the kingdom. And you'll notice that the kingdom crops up again, doesn't it, at the end of the Beatitudes in verse 10, uh, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, you see, is saying that what you've got to do is you've got to see opposition as something of a privilege because it's actually a sign that you're not dead but alive. So you remember that extraordinary, I always find it an extraordinary passage to read, Acts chapter 5. I'm reading Acts in my quiet time in the morning. I always find Acts chapter 5 fascinating because you remember the apostles are persecuted for doing the Lord's work and they're flogged 
which is a horrible thing. And yet they rejoice for suffering disgrace for the cause of Christ. Now let's try and pull all this together. What is Jesus actually saying in the Beatitudes? He's saying that in order for there to be any spiritual progress in any of us, there first of all has to be a movement down. Now, it's a silly example. Do come and give me a better one afterwards. But um, if you're on top of Table Mountain and uh, you want to catch the train back to Musenberg, the first thing you have to do is come down in the cable car, isn't it? Because there aren't any trains on the top of Table Mountain. You've got to actually come down first to reach your destination. And Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you first have to come down, you first have to be brought low. Now, this is a good point, I think, to say that the prosperity gospel, which has swept across many parts of the world, is teaching something totally different. Because the prosperity gospel removes the blessing that it pretends to be offering. So this week, uh, I heard something deeply disturbing uh, about a church in the United States. Uh, It's called Lakewood Church in Texas. They have 50,000 people coming on Sunday morning, so they're a bit bigger than us. Um, But there's absolutely no talk about being spiritually empty. There's no talk of mourning or meekness or hunger for righteousness. No, the message on Sunday morning is all about optimism, destiny and harvest. And so when a journalist um, asked the senior pastor, uh, how do you manage to keep sin and repentance out of your sermons? The senior pastor replied, well I'm an optimist and I want my people to sleep peacefully at night. And someone else on the pastoral team said to the journalist, anyone who tells you to deny yourself is Satan. Is that what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? No, it isn't. Apparently, 50,000 people are quite happy to hear that on Sunday morning. No one's raising an eyebrow. So, have you got the picture? In Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, Jesus is saying that being in the kingdom of heaven is marked by astonishing, wonderful blessing. But the blessing means that you will first be brought low in order to then be raised very, very high indeed, far higher than most of us could ever imagine or possibly hope. And I want to finish this morning by sharing a rather lovely conversion story with you uh, that took place under the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welshman. It happened in the 1920s. And there was a man in the village called Staffordshire Bill Thomas. Uh, Staffordshire Bill was a drunk. He was notoriously foul-mouthed. He was about 70 years old at the time. He was so depraved that even the non-Christians wouldn't sit with him or have fellowship with him in the pub. And one night there he was in the pub, uh, settling down to drink himself into unconsciousness, as was his habit. 
And as he sat there with drink in hand, he heard a conversation going on at the table next door. And the people were talking about the village church. And uh, one of them said, well, I was there last Sunday, and uh, the preacher said, nobody was hopeless. There's hope for everybody. Well, Staffordshire Bill didn't hear anything else in that conversation, but he thought to himself, you know, if there's hope for everybody, there's hope for me. So I think I'll go along and, and see what happens in this church. And so the next Sunday morning, he went to the church, but he was too frightened to go in, so he walked home. He turned up the next Sunday morning, but again, fear overtook him, too frightened to go in, he walked home. And then on the third Sunday, he walked up to the church and there was somebody standing outside and they said, Bill, are you going to come in? Why don't you come in and sit with me? And that night, as Staffordshire Bill listened to Lloyd-Jones, he passed from condemnation to life. All of a sudden, he found that he could understand what was being said from the pulpit. By the way, that is a mark of conversion. He believed the gospel and his heart was for the first time in his life flooded with joy and peace. And as he left the church that morning in the company of his new friend, his new friend introduced him to Mrs. Lloyd-Jones with the words, Mrs. Jones, meet Staffordshire Bill. And uh, Mrs. Jones uh, said afterwards, I could see a look of agony passing across his face as though he'd been struck by a blow. And uh, he said, no, that is a bad old name for a bad old man. I am William Thomas. And from that moment on, he became a fixture in the congregation. He was the first man at Bible study. He was the first man in church on Sunday mornings. And when he died of pneumonia, three years later, Lloyd Jones was at his bedside. And he said that as the end came... Uh, William Thomas sat up eagerly with his arms outstretched and the most marvellous smile upon his face as though he was welcoming his best friend. Now you see, friends, that is what we mean by Christian conversion. And I can't think about anything more important that we should be discussing on the first Sunday together this year. So please think about it, let's pray about it, let's talk about it together this week. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the recording of this wonderful sermon in Matthew's Gospel, and especially for the person who preached it. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we thank you that because of his death, people can have a new and eternal life. And there are some here this morning who are so grateful that you've done this merciful, gracious work in our hearts. And we pray that you would fill us with gratitude and a zeal for the lost. And Father, we also pray for those who are part of our company this morning who are presently missing that change of heart, but who might be longing for it. And we ask that you would lead them to put their faith in Christ so that they might live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.